we sent some uh, sent some supplies and equipment to uh, Ukraine today, and just pray that it will arrive safely. Okay, so that's that's the main prayer request. Is a couple of a couple of boxes with some important stuff in it for our people over there. So just pray that it gets there safely. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever." Before we begin this evening, we need to make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Scripture says we are to be walking by the Spirit, but when we sin, we're walking according to our sin nature. So to recover, we need to confess sin. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're spiritually prepared, and then we will begin. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful that we have you to come to, that you are the one who watches over us, watches over our lives. You have a plan and purpose for our lives, which you work out, and we know that all things work together for good. And Father, we pray that as we look at the circumstances on the horizon of our lives here in this country, with the chaos in the political system, the chaos in the education system, the chaos in the economic system, the chaos in the agricultural and food supply system. Father, we know that um, we have to trust you, and we pray that uh, as we go through this coming year, that whatever may befall us, we can stand uh, fast and calm, trusting in your word, not anxious for anything, but trusting in you, knowing that you will supply our every need. And Father, we continue to pray for all of those that we are involved with through ministry and in Ukraine and now scattered to Poland and Slovakia and Romania, Germany and Italy and uh, even here in America that you would watch over them and keep them safe and that they might uh, be strengthened in terms of the ministries that they're carrying out and that you might keep those who are fighting in the Ukrainian army, uh, watch over them, keep them safe and also provide opportunities for them to lead others to Christ. And we pray that you would help us as we study tonight to see the ways in which the devil's world system always uh, infects and always uh, creates chaos in the world and that we have to learn how to expunge that from our own thinking. And we gain insight from that by studying books like Judges. We pray that you might open our eyes in Christ's name. Amen. All right, last time we did a flyover of this whole section of Judges 6, 7, and 8, which is, as I pointed out last time, about a, it is 100 verses. And that's a huge chunk of content. 
a lot of it's narrative, so it's not uh, verse-by-verse exegesis in the same sense that we would get if we were going through uh, Ephesians. It would take us months to go through 100 verses if this was like in Ephesians or Galatians or Hebrews, but narrative, it goes, uh, goes fairly rapidly. And I like to always review the basic ideas that we see in Judges, and that is that this is the collapse of a nation. This is a collapse of a nation that starts off in a spiritual, uh, spiritual victory as they have had a major conquest over the uh, Canaanites. But as they have compromised God's command and compromised with the uh, paganism, the idolatry, the nature worship, uh, the basically the um, monistic worldview that is behind every system of paganism, uh, we have a, a collapse of the culture because they turn away from God. They sell themselves into slavery, as it were. They enslave themselves to uh, the world system. And that's what happens to any anybody. Just read Romans 6, that those who are not slaves to righteousness, and that is references to every believer, that when we're not walking with the Lord, we are making ourselves slaves to our sin nature. And so there's no, no real freedom when we're slaves to our sin nature. And when you extrapolate that out to a nation that is living in the extremities of their sin nature with very little, if any, moral code to restrain the sin nature so that they're living like the Canaanites uh, in, uh, and the Israelites in this period where everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes, which is nothing more than situational ethics and moral relativism, then the result just becomes more and more chaotic. That's all that we can expect. The only stability in the world, in the devil's world, comes from those who are walking with the Lord, learning the word, and, and applying the word. And that's the lesson from Judges, is how a nation over a period of about uh, 400 years goes from one of a spiritual conquest to where they are out-paganizing the Canaanites, and they are worse than the Canaanites. So that's what, what happens, and so the, the leadership is indicted, the people are indicted, and the priesthood is indicted. And you have the same thing in our culture today. The leadership is indicted. Many of you have quit paying attention to the news because you're just so tired of how corrupt the political system is in our country. You know, I, I recall not long after I got back from from Ukraine reading a uh, some news commentators' opinions about whether or not the U.S. should be involved in any way with the R- Russian-Ukrainian war. And one of his first things, well, we shouldn't because their leadership is corrupt and the people are corrupt. And I thought, the pot calling the kettle black. So if you extrapolate the conclusion from that, we shouldn't be involved at all with our own government or our own culture because it's it's pretty corrupt. It may not be uh, as overt as some systems over there, but as I've pointed out, the people are not fighting for to maintain the corruption of the Ukrainian system. They are fighting for their for their freedom. So anyway, this is what happens. The uh the the leadership is becomes corrupt. The spiritual leadership is corrupt and you just can't imagine how corrupt most 
so-called pastors and churches are in this nation. We're far from being the only church that is doing things correctly or biblically. There are tens of thousands. There are five, you know, like the Lord told uh, Elisha when he was thinking he was the only one, the Lord said, I've got 5,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. And that's true. We, there are so many across this nation, but they are not the big churches. They're not the ones that are seen on television. They're not the ones that Fox News brings forward uh, out of their uh, playbook because you can just about bet on it that every pastor that they get there, with, I can think of maybe one or two somewhat exceptions, that, that the ones that they promote are really bad. It fits the world system. So you just can't get a view that that any organization out there that is appealing to the mass audience of this country is an audience, is, is an entity, news entity, church entity, that is um, in any way outside the realm of corruption. And we have to wake up to that as, as believers, and the only hope we have is the Word of God. So the, the, uh, the pastorate is corrupt in many places. There's so few places that know how to teach the Word or teach the Word. And then the people. And the people get the pastors they choose, and they get the leaders they choose. So it's just a vicious cycle involving all of them. And as we go through Judges, we see this cycle again and again of disobedience, divine discipline, and deliverance. And we see cycles of history all through history, and we see this today. A lot of people are trying to identify the things that are going on in the world because we talk about uh, Iran, and that's ancient Persia. And, of course, ancient Persia is involved with uh, Russia in the end times in Ezekiel 38 and 39, and a lot of people are... Oh, because this is in the newspaper, they're using that to interpret Scripture or figure out, oh, are we there yet? And I commented on this, I think it was in this class last time. And the see, you have two types of people, the type of people who try to connect the dots to what's going on today, and then the kind of pastor-scholar that is respectable, in my opinion, should give the answer like Dr. Fruchtenbaum did um, just a couple, six weeks ago when we, five or six weeks ago at the Chafer conference, I went out to dinner with him and I said, I I knew what he was going to say or had a general idea what he was going to say, but I said, uh, well, Arnold, what, um, I get this question a lot as to how these events that are going on in Eastern Europe and the Middle East and how they connect to Ezekiel 38 and 39 and the end times. And he looked at me and he gave the best answer. Anything more than this, I think is a problem. Wait and see. We don't know. We have the cycles of, cycles of civilization, cycles of history, and we don't know. In every generation, God has his, I mean, excuse me, Satan has his men has his systems, has his organizations in place so that if the rapture occurs, he can, he can just move in with those systems and those organizations. But he doesn't know any more about when the rapture is going to occur than we do. So he's always ready. So in every generation, you can go out and you can 
uh, come up with all kinds of scenarios of why certain people and certain events and certain nations fit an end-time scenario. And perhaps if the rapture had occurred at those times, that's exactly who would have been moved into positions of power. But we don't know that. So we have to understand that, that throughout history, this is Old Testament, continues all through the church age too, these kinds of cycles of civilization, the uh, rise and the rise and then the fall of various civilizations. And ultimately what get, leads to a healthy civilization is going to be spiritual truth. So these cycles are evidenced all the way through uh, the judges, and we're now in the center with Gideon, and the Gideon cycle, we see the same thing, that there's uh, the uh, discipline from the, uh, the, first of all, there's a disobedience from Israel, and then there's, uh, that's half a verse, and then there's the discipline that comes after that, which is about six verses, and then the deliverance that comes. So we have one verse for apostasy, five for discipline, and 94 for deliverance. And that's where we'll be spending most of it, most of our time. I may have been a little optimistic on the title slide saying we'll get through verse 24. We may not get that far. Uh, there's a few couple of things that need to be ex- expanded on uh, in the text before we get all the way through to 24. So that's where we are. Judges 6.1 begins with the indictment, the disobedience of Israel, that the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So just a reminder that evil is defined by God's standard. Evil is not defined by uh, relativistic human standards. It's not evil in the sight of the U.S. Constitution. It's not evil in the sight of English constitutional law. It's not evil in the sight of Vladimir Putin. It's not evil in the sight of anyone except God. God is the one who defines evil. And for the most part in the Old Testament, evil is defined in relation to idolatry. Idolatry is when the creature worships the creation and not the creator. That's the bottom line. And so this introduces us at the very beginning to the problem of disobedience. And then from 6.1b down through verse 6, we see the explanation of God's discipline. So he's going to deliver Israel into the hand of the Midianites for seven years. Now, they've just come out of 40 years of prosperity, but they keep they consistently fail the prosperity test. Every time God delivers them, they go through a time of prosperity and they fail. And no nation in history has passed the prosperity test. And our nation has had many years of prosperity, and we've seen that in the midst of that, we were sowing the seeds for failure. So there is going to be discipline, and God is going to deliver them into the hand of Midian. They're going to come under the power of the Midianites. We'll talk about them in just a minute uh, for seven years. And I pointed this out when we did the summary overview last week that they didn't know that it was going to be seven years. They saw at the very beginning the Midianites come in the first year and they're hoping, well, now that they uh, raped and pillaged and plundered Israel, then taken away all of our seed and all of our produce, that 
that they won't be back. But then the next harvest time comes and they're back again. And they don't know that it's only for seven years. And it probably took them two or three years before they began to recognize there's a pattern here. And we're, we're in seri- serious trouble. And we can apply that to a lot of situations that we're, we face. And it can be personal situations because we face different crises in our own lives. They can be medical problems. We think, well, we're optimistic. We think, well, this will be solved. This will be uh, resolved through medical care in the next year. And maybe it's not resolved for years. Maybe it's not resolved at all and just something that we have to uh, persevere through for the rest of our lives. It could be economic problems. We're on the edge of facing some serious economic problems in this nation. We have a situation where the administration at hand, which has at least two and a half, two and three quarter years more to go, and due to their, uh, their see, they, they operate on a nature worship platform. Their nature worship platform is worship of Gaia Mother Earth. They're influenced by the uh, ecologists. They're, they're influenced by those who... Uh, want to get rid of really, uh, truth be told, for many of them, they want to get rid of human beings because they see the humans on the planet as being a virus uh, that needs to be dealt with so that the planet can recover from the damage that human beings have done. Of course, all their data is, is, is bogus and, and false. But we see the same thing in the ancient world they're worshiping the cycles of nature and everything else. So as they, because they're on a false platform of knowledge and they are worshiping the earth and worshiping the environment, they are making decisions that they believe are going to make things better, solve the problems, get rid of all fossil fuel, uh, get rid of, and let's just go with electricity. Well, how are you going to get the, electric, the electricity? How are you going to store the electricity? That has even worse consequences for the environment with the batteries and, and everything else. It just multiplies uh, uh, upon itself. And so you get a situation where um, you, you start raising the prices of fuel because you really don't want, you have a philosophy that you don't want people to really be driving their cars very much because that just adds to pollution and, and other problems. So there's a segment on the left that is just happy to see the prices go up so it will hopefully minimize uh, the use of fossil fuels and the various other po- policies have been put into place to limit the the uh, exploration and the um, and the production of oil and gas uh, in this country, my dad was the head of the codes and standards department at Tennessee uh, Tennessee Gas for probably the last 15 years of his career, and that included at the beginning of those 15 years he was going to Washington about every other week dealing with a lot of. Uh, political and government things that were going on because of the uh, oil crisis that came up in the around 73, 74, the um, OPEC problems and boycotting and all of the, those things. And you remember the gas lines and everything else. And he would tell me back then, he said, we have more oil and gas in this country. We have enough oil and gas in this country to keep us going for another 300 years without getting another drop from the Arabs. 
And I've heard a lot of people since then say the same thing. And yet when we don't uh, explore and utilize what we have for our own natural resources and we go and we purchase them from people who hate us, that just causes problems. And it all comes from this worldview that is completely false, this fantasy system that people uh, people live in that somehow human beings uh, can control uh, the 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 uh, the uh, uh, environmental resources, and so we're we're seeing the because and it's exacerbated by the war in, in Ukraine that didn't start it but it exacerbates it a little bit, and this is causing problems. So the, just the fuel cost is calling uh, causing uh, all of our. Uh, products, all groceries and everything to go up in price. But a lot of people don't realize that that 25% of the world's wheat comes out of Ukraine and Russia, the exported wheat in the world. 25% of exported wheat comes out of Ukraine and Russia, and they have shut down the exporting of their wheat. Both countries have. So that means 25% of the wheat in the world's market has been removed. That will bring on a famine of its own kind because the, the, the U.S. and Canada are not dependent on Russian or Ukrainian wheat. Other countries are. Well, they still need the same amount of wheat they've been getting, so they're going to try to buy it from us. So that's going to push the price up. And so we're going to see the price of wheat go up. Wheat's in everything. There, a book I read some years ago called Wheat Belly, dealing with uh, the, the issues related to wheat in the diet. But in that book, there's a list of all of the products that use wheat. Lipstick uses wheat. Chapstick uses wheat. Makeup uses wheat. You find wheat in just about anything. So, you know, when you get a combination of high energy prices coupled with high wheat prices, it's, food, everything else is just going to go up. And fertilizer prices are going up. Uh, four to five times, I've been told. I've got a pastor friend who uh, is up in an agricultural area in Pennsylvania, and that's what he's telling me is that the farmers can't buy fertilizer. They can't afford to put the fuel in their tractors. They can't afford to, afford to buy fertilizer, so they're not planting. When harvest comes in August or September, what's that going to look like if the farmers haven't planted? Let's say we've had 25 30% reduction in what we've planted this year as a nation. What's that going to look like? So, yeah, we're, we're on the edge of what could be something very serious. And I think for most Americans, it's not going to, they're, they're going to have the resources, hopefully, to pay the higher prices, but that's going to cut out. The people that it hurts are, are the people who are working menial jobs, the people that are living just on the edge, paycheck to paycheck, and that has other ramifications. So this is the kind of thing that happens when a nation shifts its worldview from truth to error. That they start making decisions based on a false view of reality. Just like an individual, it leads to horrible, horrible consequences. And then in some cases, God exacerbates that. See, you get the natural consequences of bad decisions, but then in divine discipline, you get exacerbated situations. So God is going to uh, deliver them into the hand of Midian. So in this slide, I've just put the summary of the fourth stage of divine discipline from 
Leviticus 26, 24 to 26. There are five stages of divine discipline. The fifth stage is when a nation is completely destroyed by an invading power. Now, this only applies, these stages of discipline do not apply to any other nation in the world other than Israel. You have to remember that because this is part of the Mosaic Covenant. These are the uh, curses that come for, for Israel if they violate the Mosaic Covenant. There was nothing like this for the Assyrians, for the Babylonians, for the Romans, for the Greeks, for any other, any other nation. So the cycles of discipline do not apply to anyone other than those who are part of this covenant relationship, and that restricts it to Israel. But there are patterns here that you see in other things, but what we're dealing with here is what, what God is doing to Israel in, uh, judge, all through the book of Judges. He's applying the disciplinary uh, stages to the nation because of their disobedience. So in this fourth stage, God says for the uh, third time now, he's going to uh, punish them seven times for their sins, and I will bring a sword against you. That means military uh, attack, military assault. I will bring a sword against you that will do what? Execute the vengeance of the covenant. What covenant is that? That's the Mosaic Covenant. That's why I say this does not apply to any other nation in the world. You don't see France going out. They have made a lot of bad decisions. They've seen various governments implode, but they haven't gone out under the fifth cycle of discipline because this covenant doesn't apply to them or to the Germans or to the English. But who knows now with all these migrants coming in what will happen to them. But for Israel, this is, the, this is God's justice of the covenant. The word for vengeance that we often hear the verse quoted where God says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. The Hebrew word for vengeance has to do with the execution of justice, not a personal vendetta. It's the execution of justice. And so uh, God will execute the uh, judicial uh, punishments that the covenant stipulates, and that's what we're what Leviticus 26 is explaining. So he says, when you're gathered together within your cities, why would they gather together within their cities? Because they're coming under attack from foreign uh, invaders. When you're gathered together within your cities, I will send pestilence among you. So when you don't have all the right sanitation, you don't have all the right hygiene, and everybody huddles together inside these, the walls of these cities, then what happens is disease is going to, uh, is going to multiply. And, so, and they didn't have mask mandates back then. And thank God we don't have mask mandates again. Uh, they have been set aside for the most part, and we just pray they'll go away because that's one of the greatest violations of personal liberty that I've ever seen. Uh, when you're gathered together within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of your enemy. So there'll be military defeat, but not military destruction. And then he says, when I have cut off your supply of bread. So they had a wheat problem also. They had a grain problem also. Uh, and this is what would come in the fourth cycle of discipline. When ten women shall bake your, uh, bake your bread in one oven, they shall bring back your bread by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. Instead of one person 
baking in one oven, the loaves are so small because there's so little wheat that 10 women can bake in one oven. That's the point of that, that imagery. So this is what is taking place. And so God is going to intensify the natural consequences of sin with the uh, military uh, discipline. The hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and strongholds which are in the mountains. So they made use of natural uh, elements. They went up into the various wadis and the ridges in the hill country and found caves and places that they could fortify, and they would move in there because they were losing um, losing access to their fields. Now, that's an important summary statement to pay attention to because at the very beginning of when we're introduced to Gideon, we're going to be told that, that uh, Gideon is is hiding out in a cistern where he is threshing wheat, or a wine press, where he is threshing wheat. And I've heard people ridicule him. He's hiding out. Well, everybody was hiding out because this is a horrible thing when an enemy could come swooping down on you and take everything that you have. So it's not a sign of cowardice. He's being rather smart in trying to hide his uh, threshing operation from any enemy spies. And so uh, he's not hiding up in the hills. And so it was, we're told in verse 3, whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up, also Amalekites, and the people of the east would come up against them. So when we look at this, I'll come back to verses 4 through 6 in a minute, but I want to remind you a little bit about the genealogy of the Arabs. Who are the Midianites? So we have coming out of the flood... The Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 11 genealogy, you have Noah's son Shem. He had three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Shem's son is Arphaxad, then Eber, then Peleg. The name Eber seems to be uh, etymologically related to Hebrews. So there's argument that I've read recently that Abraham isn't... A, a, the only Hebrew, but he be, he's the only Jew because he's the only one who's a descendant, but he has relatives that are from this, from this lineage, but we don't want to get off into that. Peleg, uh, Joktan and Peleg are the two sons of Eber. Joktan is the father of 13 Arab tribes. That surprises a lot of people that the Arabs go back this far because usually we think of the Arabs as being descendants of that wild ass of a man that was Ishmael and Esau and a couple of others, but no, it goes back further than that. So Yachtan is the father of thirteen of excuse me, thirteen of these American tribes. Then Nahor, from whom the Chaldeans will descend. Uh, is the father of Terah, who is the father of Abraham. So Nahor is the grandfather and uh, the, uh, later of the Chaldeans, and Terah and his family, the descendants of Nahor, are living in the area that later becomes known as Ur of the Chaldees. And we're told that they were worshipers of nature. They worshiped the moon, they worshiped the stars, 
There is a gospel that is still present that has been handed down through the line of uh, Noah and Shem, and there are those who are believing it, and Abraham is going to be one of those. And it will be because that it will be due to Abraham's faith that God will and his faithfulness to God that God will reward him with the Abrahamic covenant. So Abram then has as his son uh, Ishmael, who's the father of the Bedouin Arabs, and then he is also the father of Isaac, who is his firstborn, who is the seed, and Isaac will uh, be the father of Esau. And Jacob, uh, Esau is the father of the uh, Edomites and the Amalekites. So the Midianites are going to be hooked up and in alliance with the Amalekites, who are the chosen uh, or the lifelong enemy of the, of Israel. So that puts them in in perspective. Later, after Sarah dies, Abraham marries Keturah. He has six sons, one of whom is Midian. And this is the line of the Midianites. So they are cousins. The Amalekites are also uh, cousins of of the Jews. Uh, The uh, Arabs under Ishmael are also uh, distant relatives. Now, would any of you buy into an explanation of the Middle East that this is just a family squabble, so let's not worry about it? It's not really important. How about World War One? World War One comes along, and you have uh, you've had Queen Victoria, a previous generation in England, and one of her descendants is on the throne of England. She has another descendant. The cousin of the King of England is the Kaiser, and then she had married off another daughter to the Tsar. So the uh, the uh, Tsar in in Russia is also a first cousin of the uh, Kaiser in Germany and of of uh, the King of England. So would you say World War One was just a family squabble? No, but because the Ukrainians are Slavic and the Russians are Slavic, I have read people who have put forward the argument that we should not be concerned about this or it's not part of our interest in the U.S. because this is just a family squabble. It's a civil war. Well, you know, the Arab-Israeli conflict's not a civil war. World War I was not a civil war. So why would you, in light of knowledge of history and all logic, would you ever want to say that what's going on between the Ukrainians and the Russians is a civil war? I just thought of that implication. So we have the Midianites, who are cousins, and then we have the descend- other descendants of uh, Terah. Through, you have Nahor, who is Abraham's brother, and his son is Lot, and Lot is the father of Ammon and Moab, so the Ammonites and the Moabites come that way. So here we have our map of of Israel. The Midianites are coming in, and it says they are coming in at harvest time every year, and they are gathering up all of the grain in uh, harvest, or almost all of it. They leave just enough for the Israelites to survive to the next harvest and to plant another crop for them. So they're basically becoming uh, economic slaves to the Midianites. As far as Gaza, now we all know this area down here, 
is called the Gaza Strip, and that's where uh, mostly Hamas is in control. But that is just, that's the most extreme point at this time. This area along here, you have uh, the five cities of the uh, 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 five lords of the Philistines. You've got Gaza and Gerar and Gath and Ekron and Ashdod. Uh, these are this is Philistine territory, but they're coming in and they're basically uh, taking everything uh, that's there from uh, uh, in Israel. So God is making a claim here when He comes to the um, uh, comes to Gideon, sends this prophet, and the prophet speaks of God in the same way that God spoke of Himself earlier. He, and throughout the Old Testament, God defines Himself as "I am the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I'm the one who gave you freedom. I'm the one who brought you out of slavery." And this is exactly what is said in Judges 6.8 when the Lord sends this uh, nameless prophet to the children of Israel who said, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. Literally, the slave quarters. It is the dwelling place of slaves, the slave quarters. And the slave quarters was in Goshen in Egypt. And God goes on to say, I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you along the way, which was he defeated the Amalekites on the route and drove them out before you. And that would include all of the Canaanites, the major tribes, the major population centers. And I gave you, uh, gave you that, that land. So in verse 7 we read, It came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of Midian. So they're crying out to the Lord, not because they have realized their sin. They're crying out to the Lord, not because they are turning to him. That terminology is not used here at all. They are crying out to the Lord because uh, they're, they're just suffering so badly. It's just a cry of desperation, but is, is not a cry um, for them to... Uh, turn back to God. Now, when we look back, let's see if I've got the verse here. We look back to our main section here. When we read about this, we read the description in verses uh, 4 through 6. Then they would encamp, that is, the Midianites would encamp against them, destroy the produce of the earth, so they're wiping out all their their, um, harvest, as far as Gaza, and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor donkey. So they're they're taking away their primary source of protein, of animal protein, and they're removing all of their flocks and herds as much as possible, leaving them uh, almost nothing except for what they could hide in in the wadis around the various villages. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents coming in as numerous as locusts, both they and their camels were without number, and they're using camels. This is one of the first uses mentioned in ancient history of camels being used uh, in a military way as a as a cal- cavalry coming in on their on their camels to ride uh, as it were a light cavalry going in to destroy to destroy the land. The result is given in verse six. So Israel was greatly greatly impoverished. They were greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. This is the economic consequence of their sin. 
a lot of people today want to make a distinction between uh, economic policy and social policy. But social policy has economic consequences. A spiritual policy has economic consequences. We, we live in a world where we try to analyze everything uh, scientifically and look at cause, be able to identify causes and results and consequences. But when you have listed in the stages of divine discipline statements by God that if you disobey me, then I will bring a famine. I will bring a drought. The sky will be hardened like bronze and the, and the ground like iron. Well, how do you draw a connection scientifically going into the laboratory to draw a connection between uh, disobedience to God and droughts and famines and disease? Uh, those are not observable phenomena. This is something God does in, uh, in addition to natural consequences. So the result of their, uh, their sin is that it brings about uh, economic consequences and a famine. The Hebrew word that is translated greatly impoverished literally means they are brought low. And this describes a state of deprivation. And it is in its extremity. And the number of ways in which uh, this word is used in the Old Testament emphasizes this. Over 62 times it is used to describe this state of despair, deprivation, uh, depression, hopelessness, and they're in a, backed into a corner where there's no hope. There's no available uh, human solution. So they literally are brought small or they are brought low, and then they finally, out of total despair, uh, they will cry out to God. And it's in that context that God is going to send uh, the, uh, the prophet. He's going to send their, uh, this nameless prophet to them. And that's going to be in verse 7. So, and 8. He sends this nameless prophet to them in verse 8 and 9. And God reminds them that he's the one who brought them up. And then in verse 10, he says, Also I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. That takes us, that phrase takes us right back to Judges chapter 2, verse 2. Uh, in, in the summary, where the angel of the Lord, which we're going to, who's going to show up again in the next couple of verses, uh, the angel of the Lord came to Israel at the end of that, the death of that Joshua generation and came up from Gilgal to Bochim and reminds them, what does he say? I led you up from Egypt, brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. I said, you shall make no covenant with the uh, uh, with the inhabitants. You shall tear down their altars. But what have you done? And at the end of verse 2, he says, you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? So this is the indictment. They haven't obeyed God. They have ignored the word of God, and they have not applied the word of God in their thinking and in their lives. That is why when you get to a passage like uh, verse 10, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites because the gods of the Amorites are nothing. And the term Amorites was just a catchphrase for all of the Canaanite 
uh, gods and goddesses, the whole nature pantheon. It's they're worshiping uh, this, this basically what I've been talking about so much, this, this basic system of nature worship, worshiping the creation rather than the, rather than the creator. So that brings us to verse 11 where we read, Now the angel of Yahweh came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, not Oprah, Ophrah, it's, it's a P-H, Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. So I want us to take a look at who this is that appears. We mentioned it briefly, covered a few verses back in Judges 2.2, but I want to look at what the Bible teaches about the angel of the Lord. There is disagreement among some evangelicals on the identity of the angel of the Lord, which I think is important to deal with. I remember I remember when I was in high school, had a good friend who had been a counselor, mentor to me for many years. And um, I don't know where he got it because I don't think that it was part of the Bible school that he went to in terms of their theology. He had gone to Bob Jones. But he would argue with me that the angel of the Lord is not the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. And I just wish he had lived longer than he did because I, I would love to discuss with him how he gets around all of these verses in Scripture. But there are those who say this isn't the pre-incarnate Christ, and I think that has significant implications in terms of someone's theology, and so we need to be uh, informed as to what the Bible says and why it says it. The title is Malaak Yahweh. The word Malaak is the Hebrew word for messenger or angel. That's what angel means. The, comes, the English word angel comes from the uh, Greek word angelos, which is the Greek word for messenger. So an angel is a messenger of God, but this is a distinctive term that applies to only one individual messenger of the Lord. So this is the distinctive person. And sometimes because in context it will go from angel of the Lord and also say angel of Elohim, angel of God. Angel of God is just another term for the angel of Yahweh. So it's not another personage. It's the same. Uh, it's just a synonym. So let's look at some of these evidences that the angel of the Lord is God, that he, the angel of the Lord is fully God. So the first place to go is in Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16, for various reasons, is one of the more unusual circumstances, situations somebody gets into when they're influenced by a pagan culture, and that is that at this point, Abraham and Sarah have still been unable to conceive and have a child. God's promised a son, and so Sarah gets the bright idea that, okay, why don't you, let's follow the custom of the pagans, and let's uh, take uh, my, my maidservant, and make her your concubine, which was a legal status. A lot of folks just don't understand what, what, how this relates. It's a legal status, and it's, it's almost, I'm not going to push it very far, but it's almost like getting a surrogate, uh, a, a, you know, a, a surrogate uh, mother uh, so that if a, a, a woman can't get pregnant, they get a surrogate so that 
they can have a surrogate pregnancy. It's a little different than that because they didn't have the scientific ways of artificial insemination and things like that. So Sarah says, take, take Hagar, uh, my maid, and uh, make her your concubine. And so he does, and that she gets pregnant. And as a result of that pregnancy, that she is going to be um, pregnant, give birth to Esau. So in verse uh, 7 to 13, we have this engagement uh, as she um, has been treated harshly by Sarai after the birth of Esau. So she runs away, and the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. I don't think she's given birth yet, but but, uh, she's, she's pregnant, and that's what's upset Sarah. And he's the, the angel of the Lord says to her in verse 8, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? God always asks questions. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't just talk, start telling her. He's trying to get her to think about where she is and why she's there. It's the same thing he did with Adam and Eve after they ate of the fruit. God shows up and says, why are you here? Where are you? Why aren't you where you're supposed to be? And getting them to think about it. He's fully aware of who, where she is and why she's there because of his omniscience. So she says, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. So the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. And so then we come to verse 10. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. Now, that's an interesting statement to be made by an angel. Now, why is that? Well, the first thing that we see here is that the angel of the Lord is saying that he is the one who has the authority and the capability to multiply her descendants. Only God can do that. So the angel of the Lord is taking... um, claiming that he has uh, divine abilities. The second thing we observe here is that she uh, gives a name to the angel of the Lord, and the name is, you are the God who sees. Isn't that interesting? If this is just an angel, then it's just an angel. But she knows that this is God and the God who perceives, the God who sees, the God who knows. And then the third observation is that Moses is the one who writes Genesis. Moses is the narrator. So the narrator is the one who is saying, then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. That's Moses' words. What is Moses? How does Moses refer to the angel of the Lord? He calls the, calls the angel of the Lord the name of the Lord. So you have three things here that indicate that the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, is indeed uh, God himself. The next we'll look at is uh, the angel of the Lord and Abraham in Genesis 22, 11 to 19, just about five chapters off to your right. This is, another, again, another fascinating passage and a fasc, uh, fascinating chapter. This is the story of uh, God testing Abraham and telling him to take Isaac, his only son, 
and take him to the land of Moriah, the mountains of Moriah, which is right there in the heart of Jerusalem, where Jerusalem is now, and to sacrifice him as a burnt offering. So at the end of this, after... Uh, God has provided, or it, it, it happens, verse 11 happens, right, as God is providing a substitute for, for Isaac, the angel of the Lord calls from heaven. Now, this is distinctive because up to this point, it has been uh, Yahweh that has spoken or God who has spoken, and now it's the angel of Yahweh called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he, that is the angel of the Lord, says, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for, uh, for a burnt offering. Verse 14 we read, And Abraham called the name of the place. What is very similar to Hagar names it. For Yahweh, Abraham names this place Yahweh Yireh, which in Hebrew means Yahweh will provide. So he recognizes the angel of Yahweh is Yahweh, and Yahweh has provided a, a sacrifice. And then in verse 15 we read, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord. So the angel is saying, I have sworn a covenant to you by myself. Only God swears a covenant by himself because there's nothing higher than God. And he says, by myself I have sworn. That indicates his, his deity says the Lord, not says the angel of the Lord, but says the Lord. So it is the angel of the Lord calls from heaven and says, I said, and then the next verse it says the Lord. So the angel of the Lord is identified as Yahweh. And then what do we have? In Genesis 22, 17 and following, we have a, the same kind of summary of the Abrahamic covenant that God gave to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and reiterated in Genesis 15 and in Genesis chapter 17. And so it's uh, the, the blessing multiplying your descendants uh, in your seed. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And so that's a reiteration of the Abrahamic covenant. Only God can swear that covenant. So this indicates the angel of the Lord is God. It also reminds us, it also reminds us that back in the opening uh, chapters, our opening verses of chapter 22, that when when um, the angel of the Lord says to Abraham uh, that you have you, you have feared God, you've not withheld your only son from me, then in Genesis twenty two one it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham, not the angel of the Lord, but God tested Abraham, and then He said, "Now take your son to sacrifice on Mount Moriah." So this tells us that all through this chapter it goes back and forth calling the angel of the Lord. Yahweh or God. So it shows that uh, the angel of the Lord is fully, fully God. Then we come to another episode at the end, near the end of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 31, uh, verses 11 to 13. And we read there, then the angel of God 
See, it switched the terminology, but it's still talking about the angel of the Lord, spoke to me in a dream, saying, Jacob. I said, here I am. Sounds a lot like Abraham earlier. And he said, lift your eyes now and see all the rams which leap, and it goes on through that. And then in 31.13 says, I'm the God of Bethel, where you anointed the pillar and where you made a vow. That was what happened in Genesis um, uh, that's what it was referred to earlier in Genesis 28, uh, 13, one of my favorite passages. And behold, the Lord stood above it, that is, above the altar there at Bethel, the same spot. You can visit that spot in Israel, which we've done before. Um, behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie will give to you and your descendants. So it's, again, it's a repetition of the Abrahamic covenant. And in verse 15, uh, God affirms, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. So the angel of God speaks to Jacob in Genesis 31 at Bethel. And in Genesis 28, and, and, and in Genesis 31, he's referring back to what he had told Jacob earlier. So in Genesis 28, it refers to the Lord Genesis 31, it's referring to the angel of the Lord, but they have to be the same, uh, the same person. In Genesis 28:16, then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid, and he said, How awesome is this place. There's none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So he wakes up the next morning. He sets up a pillar stone. And he is uh, pours oil on top of it and calls the name of that place Bethel. So this is just connecting the dots. When he's at Bethel later on, the angel of the Lord appears, and it's the same as Yahweh that appeared in chapter 28. Then we read in Genesis 32 this episode of Jacob wrestling with the, um, with the man that appears there, and he has this wrestling match and then the man who is the angel of the Lord and the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ touches his socket of his hip, which goes out of joint, and he is uh, um, he's injured or crippled, but um, the, he continues to hold on to the angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord says, let me go for the day breaks. And so uh, uh, God says to him, what is your name? And he says, Jacob. He doesn't say, what is your name? Because he doesn't know who he is. He's, he's wanting to get Jacob to think about the significance of his name. Uh, so he says, what's your name? He says, Jacob. And he says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God, God and with men and have prevailed. And Jacob's going to turn it around and say, tell me your name, I pray, and he said, why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So God doesn't ask, answer all the questions we ask of him. And so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. And I would bet the King James I memorized this one time. I think it says saved. And that's why Gordon Whitelock chose this as the name of Camp Peniel, is because it was a place where people would come, and they would find God face to face and be saved. Now, this incident with the wrestling with the angel is later referred to in Hosea. And Hosea 12.4 says, He struggled with the angel 
and he prevailed. That's the connecting the angel of the God to uh, angel of the Lord to the wrestling there in Genesis 32. Uh, he wept and sought favor from him and found him in Bethel, and there he spoke to us. That is the that is the angel is the Lord God of hosts. The Lord is his memorable name. So that's just a part I could go into passages in Exodus and other places, but we don't have time tonight. But we'll look at the next most significant passage on identifying the angel of the Lord as divine in terms of how Gideon responds to the angel of the Lord, and we'll start there uh, next time. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study, work our way through this to see how you are uh, working in your grace to deliver a people who have not turned back to you. They've simply cried out in misery and how you are setting things up to provide a deliverer, somewhat hesitant deliverer. So, Father, it's all about grace, and we need, we need to be reminded of that in our own lives. So, Father, we ask that as we study through this, we see your grace, we see your provision, and we see all the dynamics that work themselves out when you have the culture wars, the culture conflicts, the worldview conflicts that we see in our world today as well as at that time. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.